You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. We were to take the place of a gallant Pennsylvania regiment, the 84th, which had been literally cut to pieces. The little wood pasture was filled with the wounded of the 84th Pennsylvania and 5th Ohio, who had been able to crawl down from their line on the hill beyond the woods. The bullets rattled like hail in the treetops, but in this depression only a few were hurt by glancing balls from the limbs above. As we advanced, rabbits sprang up and away. A dog flew across our front, but he was not after the rabbits, for he carried his tail between his legs. Quickly out of the little wood, we crossed a rail fence. Twenty yards to the top of a hill in a little field, we came upon the left of the 5th Ohio Infantry, a brave regiment that lost five color bearers killed at that spot. A few men of the Pennsylvania regiment still clung to their old line on the hill. As we appeared over the brow of the hill, a perfect blizzard met us. The very air seemed to grow heavy with bullets, which, in striking our men, sounded like the dusting of carpets with rods. In front of us, across a little level field, but sixty or seventy-five yards distant, stood a substantial stone wall, from behind which Jackson's men were coolly shooting us down. Just back of the wall was a rather abrupt hill, upon the brow of which stood a second line of the enemy, also pouring a murderous fire into our ranks. It was a perfect storm of concentrated fire. Already one of our regiments had melted away like snow under the sun. Dead men, with horses here and there, were thick along the line. Our fire affected but little, while that of the enemy was so deadly that in less than five minutes we should be in the condition of the regiment whose place we had just taken. We felt that it was a waste of life to stand there, that brave men could fall back from such a place without dishonor. We had not been in the roaring place more than a third of a minute, just time to fire and load once, but it was long enough to lose sixty-five men. We must go forward or back. Just at that critical moment, out sprang Paul Truckee in front of our line. Waving his gun over his head and shouting, Come on, boys! He dashed at the stone wall. It was not much to say, and but few could hear him, but his action was an inspiration. Our regiment charged as one man, and the stone wall in the hill beyond was ours almost before the enemy knew what was the matter. Corporal James H. Simpson, 14th Indiana, Kimball's Brigade In going into the fight, a part of the Stonewall Brigade, composed of the 2nd, 27th, and 33rd Regiments, had to cross an open field, which was commanded by one of the enemy's batteries, and it looked like a desperate undertaking. But fortunately, they did not quite have our range, and the shells flew over our heads, but too close to be comfortable. I remember that the wind from one raised the hair on my head, but that might have been from fright. 
We did not lose any time in getting across that field, but struck a lively double quick and got over without the loss of a man. As soon as we reached our position, we deployed into line of battle and pitched into the fight. I loaded and fired as fast as I could and was just ramming down my last cartridge when I was struck in the hip and tumbled over. It passed through my mind as I was falling that the bullet had either grazed the bone, broken my hip, or gone into the cavity of the stomach, in which case it would have been all over with me. So as soon as I touched the ground, I whirled over on my hands and knees to see if my hip was broken, and finding it was not, I commenced to crawl back to the rear. In so doing, I passed close to my brother, who called out to me to know if I was shot. I told him yes in the hip. He ordered two men to take me off the field, and one took me by the head and the other by the heels, and started down the hill. They did not stand on the order of their going, but they went. We had not gone far before the order was given to fall back, and I saw that the men who were carrying me could not get away with their load, so I told them to put me down and look out for themselves. They were just about to do so when Major Lawson Botts of Charlestown, a warm personal friend of mine, rode by and asked who that was, and when told, he jumped off his horse and said, Put him on my horse. And then I was guilty of an act I have always been ashamed of. I had no sooner gotten into the saddle when the most vicious-sounding bullet I ever heard swished by my ear, and I thought it had taken a part of it off. Of course, I ought to have taken the kind major on behind me, but that ball demoralized me, and I felt it was no good place to be, so forgetting all about Major Botts, I dashed off over the hill, leaving him behind. Fortunately, he got out all right, but no thanks to me. Sergeant William B. Colston, 2nd Virginia, Garnett's Brigade. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 143 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. We're going to pick back up right where we left off last week with the Battle of Kernstown, which took place on March 23rd, 1862. As y'all recall, at the end of the last show, Stonewall Jackson had just discovered that he wasn't just tangling with a token force of Federals left behind in Winchester. Jackson's aide, Sandy Pendleton, had returned from scouting beyond the rebel batteries. From a high point on Sandy Ridge, he'd obtained a clear view of Pritchard's Hill and the countryside beyond, and the panorama that unfolded before his eyes had unnerved him, for Federal infantry regiments and artillery batteries seemed to cover the landscape. A shaken Pendleton quickly returned to Stonewall Jackson's side and told the general that at least 10,000 Yankees stood between the Valley Army and Winchester. In that moment, Stonewall suddenly realized that rather than having his way with a mere Federal rear guard, he was, in fact, likely going to have to fight hard now just to save his little army from destruction. Fearing that his men would be demoralized by the realization they were, in reality, heavily outnumbered and caught in a bad spot, Jackson cautioned Pendleton, say nothing about it. Then Stonewall added, we are in for it. 
After receiving Pendleton's startling report, Stonewall Jackson prepared for the worst. He scrapped his plan for outflanking the Yankee batteries on Pritchard's Hill and instead moved to protect his own guns deployed on Sandy Ridge, since Pendleton had counted the flags of five Union regiments marching toward the Confederate position. Jackson personally ordered Colonel John Eccles to advance his 27th Virginia of the Stonewall Brigade to support the rebel guns. This order should have gone through Garnett, the commander of the Stonewall Brigade, but Jackson later claimed Garnett couldn't be found at that moment. Garnett was, in fact, with Captain McLaughlin, one of the artillery battery commanders, who had asked Garnett to ride forward with him to observe that same Yankee column that Sandy Pendleton had seen. In any case, the 27th Virginia advanced about 800 yards beyond the Confederate artillery to a stone fence that ran east to west for 500 yards along a low spur of Sandy Ridge. The men of the 27th vaulted over the fence and, going a bit farther, took up position in a belt of open timber. Eccles then sent an officer to find Garnett and let him know that the regiment had moved forward at Jackson's orders. The time was about 3.45. Across the way, the Federal commander, Colonel Nathan Kimball, had been slow to appreciate the importance of Sandy Ridge. In fact, that morning, Kimball had neglected to place a single soldier on it, and then Turner Ashby's brief diversionary attack against the extreme Union left had further distracted Kimball from the threat to his right. It was only shortly after 3 p.m., after the Confederate batteries on Sandy Ridge opened fire on Pritchard's Hill, that Kimball seemed to awaken to the importance of that high ground there to the west, and he ordered Erastus Tyler's brigade of infantry, with eight companies of Federal cavalry, to come up and clear Sandy Ridge of the rebels. In his book, Shenandoah, 1862, Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign, Peter Cousins explains that, quote, Despite Kimball's superiority in numbers, the audacity of Jackson's flanking movement caused him to conform his movements to those of Jackson. Had Kimball used his numerical superiority to counterattack up the Valley Pike while containing Jackson's troops on Sandy Ridge, the result might have been a stunning Confederate defeat, perhaps even the annihilation of the Valley Army, with little loss to the Federals. In a post-war letter, Kimball confessed his miscalculation of rebel numbers, saying, His movements had been concealed by the woods. His force in my front did not appear to have been diminished, and was equally as great as my own, so that any force moving around to my right was an excess. Such was my con- conclusion. End quote. Kimball dutifully relayed his decision to clear the rebels off Sandy Ridge to James Shields, his incapacitated superior back in Winchester. This was also the first that Shields knew that Stonewall Jackson was on the field in force. But even with that knowledge, there was little the injured Shields could do to actually help Kimball, and unfortunately, Nathaniel Banks had already departed Winchester to make his way to Washington for yet another conference. The battle, therefore, was Kimball's to win or lose. Colonel Erastus Tyler's brigade was made up of five regiments, the 7th Indiana, the 7th and 29th Ohio, 1st West Virginia, and 110th Pennsylvania. 
The 39-year-old Tyler felt he had much to prove at Kernstown. While commanding the 7th Ohio in western Virginia, he had stumbled badly in his first encounter with the enemy, losing a hundred men captured at Cross Lanes. Despite that fiasco, he had remained in the good graces of his superiors and was promoted to brigade command. But many of Tyler's subordinates, particularly the officers of the 7th Ohio, blamed him for the debacle at Cross Lanes. Tyler responded to Kimball's summons with more enthusiasm than discretion. A sergeant of the 7th Ohio later recalled how, quote, After we had lain an hour or so on the hill slope and had grown nervous at the noise of the shells, Tyler came riding up. He rose in his stirrups and shouted, Men, I have been asked whether my brigade can take that battery. I said you would take it if ordered. I have got the order. Men, will you do it? Of course, we all said we would and gave a cheer, though I doubt whether many of us really hungered for a nearer acquaintance with those shells. Tyler formed his brigade in close column of divisions. That is, the brigade showed a front of just two companies, perhaps 75 yards across, with the remaining 48 companies aligned like dominoes in 24 lines to a depth of 400 yards. The 7th Ohio led the column, Following it were the 7th Indiana, 1st West Virginia, 110th Pennsylvania, and 29th Ohio. Then those eight companies of Federal Cavalry, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Joseph T. Copeland, fell in behind the 29th Ohio. The infantry cast aside their knapsacks and fixed bayonets and plunged into a belt of leafless timber. Tyler calculated that his axis of advance would bring his brigade into action well to the rear of the Confederate artillery, allowing him to take Sandy Ridge from behind. But as his men advanced closer to the enemy, Tyler made a monumental mistake. Slightly less than three hours of daylight remained, but the shadows were already lengthening in the woods through which the Federals tramped, and Tyler, apparently fearful of losing tactical control of his regiments in the close terrain, decided not to open his ponderous column up and form line of battle. Tyler apparently thought he would have ample opportunity to shake his brigade out into line once he reached the rear of the rebel artillery position. But as his column advanced through the timber, Tyler at least had the presence of mind to deploy skirmishers. A few minutes before four o'clock, those Yankee skirmishers ran into Confederate skirmishers from the 27th Virginia. In his book, We Are In For It, The First Battle of Kernstown, Gary Eckelbarger shares that the battle was truly an example of how the Civil War was a conflict in which brother fought against brother, since the Confederate skirmishers here were from Company G of the 27th Virginia and included Lieutenant John Buford Lady of Wheeling. Early in the Civil War, Wheeling was a pro-Union city in mountainous western Virginia, and then later on it became part of the new state of West Virginia. But at the start of the war, John had split with his Unionist family and at Kernstown was serving in Stonewall Jackson's Valley Army in the 27th Virginia. On the afternoon of Sunday, March 23, 1862, as the opposing skirmishers collided and opened the fight on Sandy Ridge, John didn't know that nearby in the blue-clad ranks of the 1st West Virginia were his two teenaged brothers, Privates David and Columbus Lady, who had enlisted to fight for the Union. 
The Yankee skirmishers ran into their counterparts from the 27th Virginia, perhaps 300 yards north of the east-to-west stone wall that the Virginians had crossed about 10 minutes earlier. 21-year-old Eugene Smalley of Company D, 7th Ohio, remembered that, quote, It was a beautiful day. Birds sang in the trees, and the warm sun brought out the aromatic odors of the forest. Suddenly spurts of fire seemed to come out of the tree trunks ahead of us, and we heard the sound of musket shots. We had struck the Confederate skirmish line. The orderly sergeant of one of our companies, a brave young Oberlin student, fell dead in the front rank. There was not a moment's halt. We marched steadily on for perhaps five minutes. End quote. As the Federals advanced, Eccles wisely withdrew the 27th Virginia back behind the stone fence. From there, at 4 p.m., with the head of Tyler's column less than 100 yards away, the Virginians opened fire on the advancing Yankees. The initial Confederate volleys quickly revealed the folly of Tyler's column formation. As the 7th Ohio struggled to respond to the withering enemy fire, the regiment dissolved in confusion. The regiment's commander, Lieutenant Colonel William Creighton, had his horse shot out from under him, but told those within shouting distance to take cover and return fire as best they could. At the same time, Tyler was trying to get the regiment to deploy into line. About 100 men heeded Tyler's call and rushed to an open knoll about 300 yards to the east, expecting the rest of the 7th Ohio to fill in the interval to their right but they instead found themselves alone in a bad spot since everyone else had ducked into a ravine 80 yards north of the stone wall. Eugene Smalley of Company D was one of those who ran the gauntlet to ex- the exposed knoll and back. He said, quote, The command to deploy to the left was given, and as the left guide of my company, I led off through the woods and over a rail fence into a field, when, finding nobody with me but the Major, Jack Casement, and hearing bullets singing through the air and coming zip-zip through the dry weeds, we both fell back into the woods, the Major with three holes through his cape cloak. The regiment appeared to be huddled in a little hollow in the woods, uncertain what to do. Instinctively, I sought the shelter of a tree, but another man was ahead of me. A bullet struck him in the leg, and he went limping off to the rear." The next Union regiment in the column, the 7th Indiana, responded to the shock of battle much as did the 7th Ohio, with the Hoosiers also hugging the ground or seeking protection behind trees. As the regiments ahead of it disintegrated in confusion, the 1st West Virginia held together reasonably well, since it was farther removed from the initial blast of rebel musketry, although a swarm of bullets still whistled past the men or thudded into nearby trees. Behind the 1st West Virginia, though, the 110th Pennsylvania, which had a reputation as a problem regiment, panicked at the few stray bullets that reached them. Next in the column was the 29th Ohio, and its lieutenant colonel said the Pennsylvanians, quote, broke and scampered like sheep at the first fire, end quote. As the Pennsylvanians fled en masse, they split the 29th Ohio in two. At the rear of the fragmenting column, Copeland used his cavalry to try to rally the 110, but his efforts were in vain. And so Tyler's brigade had been stopped cold in the first five minutes of fighting, 
and in the next few minutes the momentum of battle turned in favor of the Confederates as Jackson rushed troops forward. Bypassing Brigade Commander Jesse Burks, Jackson personally told Lieutenant Colonel John M. Patton, Jr. to advance his 21st Virginia to the Stone Wall. The 21st did so, taking position to the right of the 27th Virginia. Tyler's initial attempt to deploy his brigade to the left failed miserably, so about a quarter after four, he tried to extend his right flank, which, if successful, would allow him to easily outflank the rebels before him. Tyler chose Colonel Joseph Thoburn's 1st West Virginia to make the move. Thoburn was able to extricate his regiment of loyal Virginians from the brigade column in good order and form it in line of battle. He aimed his men toward an unoccupied stretch of stone wall west of the 27th Virginia. One hundred yards of open ground stood between the 1st West Virginia and the wall, but Thoburn felt confident of success as he led his men forward in a mad dash. Suddenly, though, a double line of Confederate infantry appeared at the previously empty section of Stone Wall. When the Union soldiers were only forty yards away, the wall erupted in smoke and flame. A bullet smashed the bone in Thoburn's upper arm and knocked him to the ground. When their colonel fell, the momentum of the 1st West Virginia's charge was broken, and the shattered regiment retreated back to the safety of the woods. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. The Confederates who repelled Thoburn's flanking attack were from the 23rd and 37th Virginia of Fulkerson's brigade. Fulkerson had reacted decisively to the opening volleys along the stone wall. 
He took his 500-man brigade toward the sound of the firing, and as they approached the stone wall, the men broke into a run. The onrushing rebels reached the wall just before the men of the 1st West Virginia. George C. Pyle of the 37th Virginia recalled, quote, We were armed with the old smoothbore muskets loaded with ball and three buckshot. The Yankees had now reached within 50 yards of the fence when we opened fire, and it appeared like every shot took effect, and what was left of them retreated to the wood from which they came. The ground looked like it was covered with the dead and wounded. Although for some reason neither Jackson nor his aides seemed able to locate Garnett, the commander of the Stonewall Brigade reacted to Tyler's attack no less decisively than did the commanding general, or Fulkerson. Within 15 minutes of the first volley of musketry, Garnett had moved the 33rd Virginia into line at the stone fence to the right of the 21st Virginia. Next up was the 4th Virginia, which Garnett also personally shepherded to the stone wall. Across the way, the Federals, mostly from the badly fragmented 7th Indiana and 7th Ohio, returned fire from behind what cover they could find. Private William S. Young of the 7th Indiana later recalled, quote, After the first volley, the officers did not amount to much. They could not do anything except to stay and take the fire. The confusion in the fight was beyond any movement that they might attempt to make. By pure pluck, coupled with the ignorance of the danger of our situation, and by utilizing every stone, stump, and tree as a shield, it became a free-for-all. The regiments were mixed up through and through, but we never ceased to get rid of our 60 rounds as fast as we could load and shoot. In his book, We Are In For It, Gary Eckelbarger explains that, quote, By 4.30 p.m., the Confederates had stalemated Tyler's brigade. The Southerners packed 1,200 men at the stone wall, while Tyler's 2,000-plus man brigade had been severely reduced by casualties, confusion, and cowardice. The 110th Pennsylvania could not be rallied and remained well to the rear in the woods. The other four regiments had suffered significant casualties, most of which were received in the first ten minutes of action. By this time, Tyler had no more than 1,700 to 1,800 remaining soldiers to contest the Virginias behind the stone wall. The disposition of the Federal troops prevented any attempt to organize them for an assault. Tyler's brigade was not arrayed in an organized battle line. Instead, his men were dispersed along a 400-yard front, and cohesion was non-existent, as many Union soldiers fought, oftentimes without officers' orders, as clusters from different companies and regiments. End quote. Stonewall Jackson continued to feed the fight against Tyler. At his command, the 2nd Virginia of the Stonewall Brigade came into action on the right of the 33rd Virginia. That lengthened the Confederate defensive line behind the stone fence to about 500 yards. A few minutes earlier, from Burke's brigade, the small 1st Virginia Battalion, better known as the Irish Battalion, had joined the contest. Despite their advantage of position, however, the battle was proving costly to the Confederates as casualties mounted. Most of the killed and wounded were hit in the head as they rose up from behind the stone fence to take a shot at the Yankees across the way. In spite of his prompt response to Tyler's assault, it was evident to Jackson by 4.30 that his advantage on Sandy Ridge wasn't decisive and that the best he could hope for against the Federal's superior numbers was a stalemate 
but still the odds of a draw looked good to him, since he still had three regiments in reserve, the 5th, 42nd, and 48th Virginia, and less than two hours of daylight remained if the Union commander tried to throw together a new attack plan. When Sandy Pendleton had delivered the startling news that the Federals were actually present on the battlefield in overwhelming force, Stonewall had declared, We are in for it, because he knew his little valley army was in for the fight of its life. But now Jackson had stabilized the situation and looked likely to come out of the fight with a draw. To do that, Stonewall knew that now he need only hold on until dark. In his book, Shenandoah, 1862, Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign, Peter Cousins explains, quote, It had long been an axiom of war that a commander not reinforce failure. But Nathan Kimball was short on military education, and reinforcing failure was precisely what he set about to do after Tyler's attack on Sandy Ridge stalled. Rather than probe for weaknesses elsewhere along Jackson's thinned lines, Kimball began a piecemeal deployment of forces towards Sandy Ridge. Four companies of the 8th Ohio marched into the fray first. The men were commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Franklin Sawyer, who had led that reconnaissance first thing on Sunday morning. Now, hours later, at a quarter to five that evening, Sawyer led his small command forward and ran into Confederates of the Irish Battalion. Several sharp volleys from the nearby 2nd Virginia helped the Irish Battalion halt Sawyer and his men. A few minutes later, three fresh Federal regiments, the 84th Pennsylvania, 5th Ohio, and 67th Ohio, advanced from Pritchard's Hill past the left flank of Sawyer's stalled force to renew the assault on Sandy Ridge. The 67th Ohio struck first, but was stopped 50 yards from the stone wall by blistering enemy fire. The 84th Pennsylvania then faltered when it too was staggered by the rebel musketry. As the 5th Ohio advanced, Kimball suddenly regretted his decision to strip the Federal batteries on Pritchard's Hill of their infantry support, and he had a bugler blow recall just as the 5th Ohio entered the fray. Only the rear companies of the 5th heard the order, but they dutifully fell back, leaving the regimental commander, Lieutenant Colonel John H. Patrick, to continue into the fight, unaware that he was now doing so with only half a regiment. As Patrick pressed forward, both color bearers of the 5th went down. Eight more men bearing the flags were hit. Twice the 84th Pennsylvania tried to come up on the flank of the 5th Ohio, and twice they faltered and fell back into the shelter of the timber. The 84th's commander, Colonel William G. Murray, led his men forward a third time, and the Pennsylvanians reached a point 40 yards from the stone wall, but the Confederate fire was simply devastating. When Murray was shot in the head and killed instantly, the 84th Pennsylvania disintegrated. Private John Worsham of the 21st Virginia recalled having a fine time repulsing the Yankees. He later told of how, quote, Some of Company F were kneeling down, firing from behind the fence. Some were standing up. Soon all were standing and taking deadly aim as they fired. As the excitement increased, they mounted the stone fence, and many sat on it, 
loading and firing until every cartridge was shot away. As the sun continued to sink slowly toward the horizon, nine Union regiments floundered on Sandy Ridge in the gathering twilight. Not one to give up the fight while enough daylight remained to wreck another regiment or two, at 5.30, Nathan Kimball committed his old regiment, the 14th Indiana, to the battle. One member of the 14th later said, quote, Ten or fifteen minutes rapid marching brought our regiment into the woods at the foot of the little hill, on the brow of which eternity would begin for many of us. A few steps brought us to the top of the hill and a little clearing, across which not more than sixty yards distant stood the stone wall, decorated with a fringe of smoke. Out of the smoke a line of fire flashed constantly. Between our line and this wall the dead and wounded lay in heaps, while clustered around the stars and stripes a few heroic blue jackets still fought desperately, some standing, some kneeling, and others lying full length, but all apparently determined to die right there. The Hoosiers delivered a volley at the rebels, then hugged the ground as the enemy's return fire sleeted through their ranks. Fortunately for the 14th, though, many of the Confederates, in firing downhill, overshot their mark, and so the 14th was able to maintain a toehold in the open opposite the 21st Virginia. Here and there a few men screwed up their courage and advanced toward the stone wall. Then occurred the incident described in the quote I read at the top of the podcast, when six-foot-six-inch-tall Private Paul Truckee of Company G stood up and advanced toward the stone wall, yelling, Come on, boys! And the 14th Indiana rose up and followed Truckee in a wild, improbable, irresistible charge. On the far side of the stone wall, the situation had turned grim. Sergeant George W. Peterkin of the 21st Virginia said, quote, The battle was a most desperate affair. The firing was much heavier and the fighting fiercer and longer than Manassas. We held our position against five or six regiments for more than an hour until our ammunition was gone. During that hour, the firing of musketry was uninterrupted. We were pouring volley after volley into each other at distances varying from 40 to 150 yards. Colonel Patton behaved very gallantly, being always present in the thickest of the fight. His horse was wounded, and he had a ball through his coat. End quote. With most of his men out of ammunition, and others down to just a few cartridges scavenged from the dead and wounded, Patton was thankful, at 6 p.m., to receive an order from Garnett to withdraw. Most of the 21st Virginia got away in good order, although several dozen men threw away their empty muskets to hasten their flight. What remained of the Irish battalion quit the field with the 21st. The men of the 14th Indiana charged over the stone wall right behind the retreating Virginians. Garnett was 500 yards removed from the 21st Virginia's position at the extreme right of the Confederate line on Sandy Ridge, but from an intimate knowledge of the rapidly deteriorating state of affairs on his own sector of the stone wall, he had correctly deduced the plight of the 21st, and so ordered Patton to withdraw. From 4.30 until nearly 6 o'clock, Garnett had moved up and down the line, keeping a close eye on the situation. With officers falling at an alarming rate, an increasing number of men pushed past Garnett, headed for the rear. Garnett said they left the ranks, quote, some from exhaustion and others because they had expended their ammunition, end quote. 
By 6 p.m., casualties and defections and empty cartridge boxes had caused the fire from the Stonewall Brigade to drop off markedly, a fact not lost on Tyler's Brigade, which was showing renewed life as soldiers of the 7th Ohio and 7th Indiana, having fired their last rounds, gave way to the fresher 29th Ohio. But Garnett was also worried about the presence of Federal cavalry beyond his and Fulkerson's left. There, around the Glass Farm, a detachment of the 1st Ohio Cavalry was rounding up Confederate infantrymen who had quit the fight and wandered in that direction. Reports of Yankee numbers there out beyond the flank were understandably vague, but the reports that reached Garnett caused him to conclude there was a real danger he was about to be enveloped, and so under the circumstances, with no idea of Jackson's whereabouts or of his battle plan, Garnett took the only reasonable course of action. He ordered a withdrawal from the stone wall. The aide delivering Garnett's instructions to the commanding officer of the 27th Virginia found that the order came not a moment too soon, since not a man in the regiment had a single cartridge left. The commander of the 33rd Virginia, Arthur C. Cummings, also was grateful for Garnett's decision. He had lost all control of his regiment as cartridge boxes were emptied and exhausted men quit the ranks. Meanwhile, part of the 4th Virginia received the order to withdraw and left the stone wall with the 27th Virginia, but farther to the left, the remainder of the 4th and Fulkerson's two regiments fought on, unaware that they did so alone. In the smoky twilight, the officers of Tyler's brigade across the way were slow to understand that much of the stone wall had been vacated by the rebels. Once they recognized the opportunity, though, they struggled to organize their scattered and fragmented units for a pursuit of the retreating enemy. For most of the Union soldiers in Tyler's brigade, it was simply too dark and they were too tired to mount a meaningful chase. But enough Federal soldiers advanced to the stone wall to deliver an enfilading fire on Fulkerson's unsuspecting regiments and the part of the 4th Virginia that hadn't received the order to withdraw. The unexpected direction of the Federal fire caused many of those remaining Confederates to run westward toward the glass farm and into the waiting Yankee cavalry there, rather than retreating south and out of danger. The deepening twilight, a mill pond, and several fences across the line of retreat all added to the confusion of Fulkerson's withdrawal, and stories of anger, courage, despair, and sheer terror abounded among the stunned survivors of the Confederate left. Stonewall Jackson never visited his main line of resistance at the Stone Fence. During the two-hour action at the Stone Fence, it seems that Jackson positioned himself near the spot on Sandy Ridge where the Brockbridge artillery was deployed, well removed from the struggle on Garnett's front. Jackson's continued lack of communication with Garnett, his second-in-command, is puzzling, to say the least. But Jackson's failure to inform Garnett of his location or of his overall battle plan implies that Jackson had entrusted Garnett with the defense of the stone wall and all decisions relating to it. This is a reasonable assumption, but Garnett would discover later, after the battle, that whatever authority he presumably possessed was illusory. Although he was removed from the action at the stone fence and unaware of the trouble developing there, Jackson had nevertheless taken the precaution of ordering up his reserves, the 5th Virginia of the Stonewall Brigade 
and the 42nd and 48th Virginia from Burke's Brigade. It would take time for them to reach the front line and make their presence felt, though, and in the meantime, the Confederates' main line of resistance there along the stone wall was crumbling, and Garnett had no idea that fresh troops were on the way. Peter Cousins writes, quote, The first inkling Jackson had of trouble came shortly after 6 p.m., as soldiers of the 21st Virginia began to stream past the Rockbridge artillery. Collaring a man from Company F, Jackson demanded to know where he was going. To the rear, the man answered, he had shot up all his ammunition. Rising in the stirrup, Stonewall thundered, Then go back and give them the bayonet. With that, he rode off. When he returned to the neighborhood of the Rockbridge Artillery a few minutes later, it was at the head of the 5th Virginia, which Major Frank Jones had brought up. A delighted Jackson waved his cap at the Rockbridge gunners and called out, Cheer the reinforcements. Cousins continues, writing, quote, Jackson sent Major Jones and the 5th Virginia into the woods south of Garnett's position to reinforce the Stonewall Brigade, less one man, Hugh Barr, a drummer in Company A. In the first of several feckless attempts at rallying the 21st Virginia, Jackson had Barr beat a rally for all he was worth. But Barr's drum beats were lost in the boom of artillery and cracking of rifle shots, and fugitives from the 21st Virginia continued to slip away. The 5th Virginia moved northward, led by Major Jones and the regimental commander, Colonel William H. Harmon. As Jones rode ahead, he encountered Garnett, who was riding toward the rear in the open field south of the stone wall. Jones explained that Jackson had directed the 5th to move forward to the stone wall, but Garnett informed Jones that such a move would now be useless, since the main body of defenders had already been obliged to retire. A few moments later, Garnett met Harmon, and Garnett told him that the best the 5th could hope to do now was cover the retreat by finding the best available ground close at hand and ambushing the pursuing Federals. To this end, Garnett directed Harmon to place his regiment behind a fence nearby. Garnett's plan was a sound one, but Jackson had other ideas. Coming upon the 5th Virginia filing into its ambush position, Jackson wrongly concluded that Garnett had ordered the regiment to join the retreat. It was at that moment that an, an enraged Stonewall spotted Garnett withdrawing with his own men. It was the first encounter between Jackson and Garnett since the battle had begun. Stonewall rode up to Garnett and demanded to know why Garnett wasn't attempting to rally his troops. Jackson then ordered the 5th Virginia forward into the open fields where the regiment walked into a hornet's nest as all or portions of four Union regiments pressed forward south of the stone wall. Also caught squarely in the path of the Federal pursuit, was Lieutenant William Pogue's two-gun section of the Rockbridge Artillery, which Jackson had ordered forward. As Pogue unlimbered his guns, they attracted the attention of every blue-clad soldier within sight. Pogue attempted to keep the onrushing Yankees at bay with blasts of canister, but when the hard-pressed 5th Virginia fell back, Pogue found himself flanked and forced to retire his guns with the utmost speed. Under a swarm of buzzing mini-balls, Pogue had to leave behind one of his pieces. Meanwhile, the 5th Virginia had withdrawn to the spot where Garnett had wanted the regiment in the first place. Colonel Harmon counted six or seven Yankee flags in the gathering darkness. 
By this time, it was 6.30, and the sun had set almost 20 minutes earlier. Harmon doubted he would be able to hold his position for any length of time, but then, just in the nick of time, Jesse Birch brought up the 42nd Virginia on the 5th's right, and the situation briefly stabilized. Sergeant Charles Meyerhoff of the onrushing 14th Indiana was a victim of the first volley fired by the 42nd Virginia. He later said, quote, A shot struck my cartridge box, which I always placed in proper position for a barricade for my bread basket, flanked by my canteen and haversack. The cartridge box was badly tore up, the heavy tin compartments being forced in a wad, my watch smashed, the ball passing through my overcoat, blouse, and pants, and only giving me a slight wound above the hip. I was thrown down upon the ground and rolled over two or three times. For a moment I lay stunned. In venturing to feel what I expected to be my bare backbone, you can judge my thankfulness when I found it was only my cartridge box that was disemboweled. As Meyerhoff regained his feet, the veteran 13th Indiana of Sullivan's brigade appeared out of the smoke to tilt the balance back in favor of the Federals. But the 5th and 42nd Virginia nevertheless held on long enough to allow the rest of the Valley Army to make good its escape cross-country in the direction of the Valley Turnpike. Privates Lee Frazier and Bob Owens of Company B, 14th Indiana, kept up the chase long enough to bag one of Stonewall Jackson's aides, Lieutenant George Junkin. Stonewall Jackson ordered his men to bivouac near the Valley Pike, south of Newtown, but the order meant little, and the exhausted men stopped wherever they pleased. John Castler recalled seeing only one regiment, the 5th Virginia, leaving the battlefield intact. As for his own regiment, the 33rd Virginia, Castler stated, quote, We all scattered, every fellow for himself, building fires out of fence rails, and making ourselves as comfortable as we could after the fatigues of the day. In We Are In For It, Gary Eckelbarger relates an oft-told story. He writes, quote, General Jackson did not appear daunted that evening by his defeat. Several members of an artillery battery cooked their day's only meal over a campfire made from fence rails near the Valley Pike. An unabashed gunner saw General Jackson passing by and asked him to share supper with them. Jackson accepted the man's offer and thanked him for the invitation. Stonewall took a portion of the cooked meal, sat on some rails beside the soldier who invited him, and dined with his men in front of the warm fire. The boy, apparently without fear of reprimand, spoke up again, saying, General, it looks like you cut off more tobacco today than you could chew. Stonewall turned toward the soldier, smiled, and replied, Oh, I think we did very well. But few other members of the battered Valley Army shared Jackson's opinion that night. In a letter home, a captain of the 23rd Virginia stated, quote, General Jackson was completely taken in. The wonder is why the Yankees didn't capture our whole army. End quote. Garnett and Fulkerson both believed that only nightfall had spared the army from destruction. Private Fairfax of the Rockbridge Artillery attributed the army's salvation to darkness and, quote, the want of daring on the part of the Yankee cavalry. It seems to me it was the height of presumption and daring for so small a force to attack one so large and well-equipped. Jackson must have been fooled by the Yankees. 
Lieutenant Sam Moore of the 2nd Virginia saw a divine hand in the defeat, saying, quote, I trust we may never more have a Sunday fight in which we are the attacking party, for I believe that such a disregard of the Sabbath always meets with punishment. I don't know what General Jackson was thinking of when he made the attack that day. Nathan Kimball gave no thought to a pursuit of Jackson's beaten army on the night of March 23rd. He said, quote, My men, though filled with spirited determination, were almost physically exhausted from the fatigue and exertions of the day, and they had not had any food or drink since the earliest hour of the morning, had been on the field under arms since the day before. I therefore determined to halt, give the men and animals food and rest until morning. But despite Kimball's good intentions, few Federals on the battlefield ate or rested much that night. It was after midnight before the first rations reached the field, and by then the soldiers were too tired to cook them. During the course of the night, nearly every able-bodied Union soldier was engaged at one time or another in searching for dead or wounded comrades. Official reports gave Federal losses as 118 killed, 450 wounded, and 22 missing or captured. Confederate losses were 139 killed, 312 wounded, 253 captured, and 33 listed as missing. Nathaniel Banks returned to Winchester early on the morning of Monday, March 24th, having been frightened and perplexed by the report that Jackson's army had attacked Shields' division. Banks wasted little time in joining Kimball's pursuit of the Confederates. Kimball had set off at first light on Monday morning, but it wasn't until 1.30 that afternoon that Federal horsemen stumbled upon Turner Ashby's cavalry rear guard on the outskirts of Middletown, 15 miles south of Kernstown. Meanwhile, from his bed in Winchester, James Shields was shamelessly crediting himself for every phase of action that led to the victory at Kernstown. Shields carefully worded his report so that Kimball's role was downplayed. He closed his report by merely stating that Kimball had, quote, executed my orders in every instance with vigor and fidelity, end quote. Shields' report was instantly plucked from the telegraph lines and published in northern newspapers. The papers, as Shields intended, denied Kimball any credit for the victory and instead hailed the colorful Irishman as the hero of the hour. At the same time, Southern newspapers, amid all the recent bad news from the scattered Confederate armies, seized on Jackson's action at Kernstown as an example of daring and courage. The Richmond Dispatch reported, No battle has been fought during the war against such odds. With the force not exceeding 3,500 men, men who had been on forced marches for weeks, we attacked 20,000 fresh troops, repulsed them again and again until overpowered by numbers. The paper lauded Jackson, saying, A braver man was never made. But in reality, Jackson had made mistakes. He accepted Ashby's initial, erroneous report of federal strength at face value, and then made no effort, once he arrived on the field, to confer with Ashby or ascertain the strength of the enemy he was facing. As during the Romney campaign, Jackson told none of his subordinate commanders anything of his battle plan, 
not even Garnett, his second-in-command. But Jackson would never learn to share information freely with his subordinates. It was a glaring weakness and caused needless confusion here at Kernstown and throughout the rest of the war. During the battle, Jackson also, for whatever reason, remained a quarter mile or so from the stone wall. This only made sense if he had given Garnett the responsibility for the main line of resistance, but this doesn't seem to have been the case since Jackson didn't share with Garnett his intentions with regard to the stone wall. This makes Jackson's failure to visit the front line during the fighting puzzling. But to be fair, this was Stonewall Jackson's first stand-up fight as commanding general, and although a tactical defeat, it turned out to be one of the great strategic victories of the early war. In his report of the battle, written a couple of weeks afterward, Jackson wrote, quote, Though Winchester was not recovered, yet the more important object for the present, that of calling back troops that were leaving the valley, and thus preventing a junction of Banks' command with other forces, was accomplished, in addition to his heavy losses in killed and wounded. Under these circumstances, I feel justified in saying that, though the field is in possession of the enemy, yet the essential fruits of the battle are ours. End quote. And indeed, the Battle of Kernstown had impressed McClellan and the War Department that they were confronted in the Shenandoah Valley by a dangerously aggressive Confederate commander. As a result, not only did Little Mac agree that Banks ought to stay in the valley with Shields' division for the foreseeable future, but the division of Alpheus Williams was also recalled to Winchester. Beyond that, President Lincoln decided that if Jackson were bold enough to attack Shields, he would hardly hesitate to move against Western Virginia, where Major General John C. Fremont had just taken command. And so Lincoln ordered that Brigadier General Louis Blanker's 10,000-man division be detached from McClellan's Army of the Potomac and sent to reinforce Fremont, pausing along the way in the valley to assist Banks if needed. Such, such shifts added to the muddle that was already plaguing the Federals. Earlier in March, a conference of McClellan's corps commanders, called at Lincoln's insistence, had determined that the safety of Washington required a force of 40,000 men to act as a shield for the capital, while Little Mac went off to capture Richmond. But leaving Banks two divisions in the valley to deal with the troublesome Stonewall Jackson subtracted from the number available for the capital's defense. And so Lincoln ordered Irvin McDowell and his 40,000-man corps, which had been scheduled as the last of McClellan's troops to embark for the peninsula, to instead remain behind to cover Washington. Finally, Lincoln removed the Valley District from McClellan's overall command, forestalling any further claims that Little Mac might make on the forces in the Shenandoah. Thus, despite Jackson's mistakes at Kernstown, he could justly claim that, quote, yet the essential fruits of the battle are ours, end quote. For the effects of his unexpected attack reverberated through the Union war effort in the Eastern Theater and left McClellan stripped of a goodly portion of the troops he had intended to have on hand for the Peninsula Campaign and his drive on Richmond. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is 
Decoying the Yanks, Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign by Champ Clark and the editors of Time Life Books. This is another of the books in that venerable series on the Civil War that Time Life put out back in the 80s. And really, that whole series should have a place on your Civil War bookshelf. They're great introductions to each of the campaigns or topics that they cover. You can find all of our book recommendations if you go to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. You can also find links there to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed and find out how to contact us. And then this week, we have two new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank. Michael and Walt. Thanks, y'all. Just yesterday, we released members episode number 28, in which we looked at Stonewall Jackson's nearly decade-long tenure as a professor at the Virginia Military Institute. And we'll have the next members episode out next weekend, and it will also be Stonewall-related. So there you go. And don't forget that even if you don't necessarily want to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade, you can still help us with the production, maintenance, and research costs of the podcast by going to the website and making a one-time donation, which is not tax-deductible, if that thought crossed your mind, um, if you've been doing your taxes like we have. Uh, but your donation is just for us to use in whatever way we choose, although we always do use it for podcast stuff. All right, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we start in on our coverage of Stonewall Jackson's actual official Valley campaign as we lay out the background to the Battle of McDowell. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.